addiction is not a choice that anybody makes, it's not a moral failure, it's not an ethical lapse, it's not a weakness of character, it's not a failure of will, which is how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering. Welcome to the Buddhist Recovery Podcast. I'm Shannon Smith, and I had the great fortune to sit down with Miss Kara Haney today and talk uh, all things Buddhist recovery. Uh, you may know Kara. She has been very active and a foundational member and mentor for the Buddhist recovery community groups uh, that have been arising throughout the country, and she's been empowered to teach by Bob Stahl. Hi, nice to see you. Hi, Shannon. Nice to see you, too. Yeah. So um, I am so excited to have a chance to talk to you about things all related to Buddhism and recovery. Um, Dave and I were considering, you know, putting together some um, resources and um, a, a podcast, really. And we wanted to have um, an opportunity to discuss different vantage points and perspectives on Buddhism and recovery and how they relate and intersect. And when we started dreaming this podcast, uh, you were one of the first people that came to mind for me. And I definitely wanted to um, get a chance to talk to you about this because for me, you've been somebody who I uh, recognize as having Buddhism and recovery as kind of a centerpiece of your life. So I'm excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. And yeah, I'm excited to be here. And I just really first want to just appreciate that I came to your mind and uh, in that way. So thank you for seeing me. Yeah, for sure. Well, I'm going to start with an easy question. I'm sure you've been asked this many times. But um, how did you get started in meditation and or Dharma practice? And um, was it pre or post your kind of initial recovery process? Yeah. Let's see. Well, part of my story is um, I was a teenager who uh, I had my first child when I was 17. And during that process, before I I had my child, I was exploring different things like hallucinogenics, yoga, um, meditation, like what is this consciousness? And so I was just, you know, seeking. I feel like I've always been a seeker. And um, when I had my daughter, there was someone in my life who gave me a book. And during that time of my life, there's many people as the teenagers, there's people who are like, you should do this or you should do that. or Don't do this. Don't do that. And there was someone who gave me a book that didn't give me any instructions of what I should or shouldn't do, but said, maybe this would be beneficial. And it was Thich Nhat Hanh's Miracle of Mindfulness. And I looked at that book over and over the first few years of my um, having my daughter. You know, I was utilizing substances in my, you know, from the age of 14. And then I had my daughter at 17 and I was able to be clean, what they call white knuckle for a couple of years. But then I, even so during that period, I would read this book and it helped me with my, um, just bringing my awareness when I'm, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh says something like, 
when you're washing the dishes, know that you're washing the dishes, you know, and I'd be like, when I'm changing the baby's diaper, know that I'm changing the baby's diaper just to bring this really busy mind back to the task at hand, what I'm doing. So I would say that that was my first where I was starting to practice with it. Um, I was I was born in downtown San Jose, Japantown. So it was around me was always this kind of, um, you know, Buddhist culture, a different, you know, different than Theravadan, but still. Uh, so I was always intrigued with it, but it wasn't until I, um, yeah, when I had my first child that I was really introduced to what is mindfulness? What is this practice called meditation? What is this, this path? Yeah. So how did that continue for you? So you have a young child, uh, which I know having a young child, there's lots of of spaciousness for some some practices like mindfulness of the diapers, but there's a lot of um, time that is hijacked as well. So finding formal sitting times of, you know, 40, 60 minutes can be quite difficult uh, or going to Dharma courses, especially in person at that time. So I'm curious, how did that um, continue for you and, and how did that, con- you know, become more fortified? Great question. And so that was the introduction and uh, the sitting practice was like when you can squeeze it in 10 minutes here, five minutes here. So my introduction to sitting practice was there were shorter practices. And then it was more of the integration of from the cushion to everyday life, right? Where is mindfulness? Where can I find the pause um, noticing in the body? So around this time of uh, when I had her, then when I was 19, I, I started seriously practicing yoga. I was introduced to yoga at the age of 19, which goes hand in hand with just body practice, right? And uh, breathing and um, finding places to uh, just to pause. You know, I, when I was, uh, um, as those who are parents, it's like, it's on, right? When we have the young child and as a single mom, because I was a single mom, it was just, it's a constant engaging And then I did not stay um, abstinent from substances until I was 24. So then I had that, right, of which interfered or or just brought a different perspective of mindfulness and meditation, right? There was times where I didn't. I tried to engage my attention, but my attention was distracted from the cycle of craving and addiction. And so what happened for me is that I, you know, that happened for a few years and then I hit what they call bottom, right? I hit a point where it's like, I need to find some other way besides this. And so I heard of um, a place I was working at. It was a, a, a theater at the time in um, 1995, they did an intervention. Now, all of us at this theater participated in using substances, but I was the one who <laughs> didn't they were like, we think you have a problem. And I was like, me, what about all you? So they had me, um, they invited me to go to a 12 step meeting. It was Narcotics Anonymous. And I went and I, if I wanted to keep my job at the theater, I was to continue and I wasn't ready. And then about six months later, um, something happened for me. I, um, you know, I was, I was using, and I had this, this experience where I stopped breathing and, um, my ha- my daughter was in the in the house, and I just knew I was going to uh, I was going to die. And I didn't, 
And I remember calling my mom and she didn't live far from me. And usually my, my mom and dad were, you know, they were, we had an estranged relationship, but sometimes they would, they would come in and be like, okay, you know, stuff really is terrible for you. Let's let you move into the basement, clean you up for a little bit. And then you have to go on your way. Right. Well, when I called her and she said, it was the best thing she, my mom could ever say to me. She's like, we don't really know what to do. Like you may have, you may die from this. And she just said she loved me. And that was it. And I was like, well, there's a place I can go. I can check out this 12-step meeting. So I did. It took me like 12 hours to get ready for the to the noon meeting the following day. And I went. And, you know, I stuck around. I told myself I would try it for a little while. And why this integrates with my Buddhist practice is because that was then what I found was a community. What I found at the age of 24 were other 20 and 24, 25 year olds who were into a lifestyle, like going to live shows, going to coffee, staying up late, talking, getting into each other's life. Right. But they were clean and sober is the terminology we used. And in the 12 step world, you get what's called a sponsor, someone who guides you through these steps. And the person that I chose to do that with me to develop spiritually and to develop this like uh, ethical integrity she was a Buddhist practitioner. And so when I met her, um, you know, she used to live in an ashram and she you know, practiced in various other practices and lived in India. She, um, she integrated these, you know, the spiritual principles around the steps with Buddhist principles. And so um, that was, it felt like a right fit for me. Um, we utilized a lot of mindfulness, like being aware of, um, you know, sensations in the body, being aware of thoughts, being aware of how the emotions and the thoughts and the behavior are interconnected, as well as doing the steps, such as like, what is the spiritual principle of, you know, step four is honesty, you know, so integrating all of these type of things. Um, again, my practice my formal practice, because still a single mom, my daughter, I think, was around six at that time, very active, uh, had a lot of anger, which is very you know valid because of all the things that how she was raised, what was going on in her life. Um, so luckily, I was around a lot of solid women. So in 1996, I think it was when I had eight months in recovery, we started doing these um, Vipassana practices at my house every Friday night. Didn't even freaking know what Vipassana really was, right? Just exploring it. And so me and another girlfriend were like, we're going to explore this together. So we started talking about how, you know, the thoughts are like leaves going down the stream and, and just observing the thoughts and not getting attached. You know, these just fundamental practices, but doing them in a group of like 10, 11 women. And that lasted for like 13 years, Friday night. And that was this solid practice of women in recovery who wanted to practice in meditation and explore. Um, I was still going to, let's see, I've moved a couple times. Um, I'm from San Jose, then I moved to Monterey and I started going to like the Zen center in Carmel and practicing there. And there was like a Buddhist recovery uh, group that met each week there. It was more like a 12 step Buddhist recovery, kind of like Kevin Griffin, but not. And so it, very beneficial, very helpful, uh, again, community. And there was a lot smaller group of people that I would practice with. Um, 
And then it was probably around, you know, my daughter was already an adult by now. I have had my second child. Um, life shows up. You know, I was married, bought a house, had a baby. Um, husband died, sold the house. And then it was I was a single mom again. And so by the time my son was old enough where I could do extensive like retreat time, like not extensive 30 days, I haven't been able to do that yet, but like, you know, a week or five day retreats. I started doing that around, I think it was 2012 where I could leave my son. And so that's when my retreat practice really, really came to fruition, right? So it's like doing, I started doing this intention that I wanted to do 30 nights a year of retreat. Uh, again, I can't do it all at once being a single parent. But, um, and really establishing, I already had established our daily practice, right, for years now. And it just shifted. And my my attention shifted from, I still have a lot of like the Zen practice, but shifted more into investigating into Theravada tradition, which came about probably, you know, in my recovery with 12 steps and integrating that with my brother lived in Thailand and so, and Japan, and so he introduced me to a lot of these teachings uh, in like the early 2000s. And so it just was a good fit. And, and what happened was I moved to Santa Cruz and there was a very um, active insight center here. And I didn't have that in Monterey. And so it was just timing, you know, how things kind of, well, it's almost auspicious, like things will rise for us in a way. And it's like, oh, here I can have an opportunity to move to a town that has this really vibrant community in the Theravada tradition. Yeah, it's like, um, you know, just listening to your story, it's, um, it's interesting because oftentimes there seems to be this... Um, storyline where often people kind of get sober or start the recovery process and then they realize maybe they want something a little bit different and they kind of, you know, find themselves, you know, tracking into meditation or mindfulness or Buddhist practice. But I, what I, I actually didn't know all of the, the ins and outs of your story. So it's, it's funny to hear for you, it was a little bit of the opposite. It was really Buddhist recovery that then morphed into more serious devoted Buddhist practice. Um, and so it's, it's nice to hear that, um, that storyline as well of like, you know, no, you use the 12 step, but you're really modifying it and, and looking at it through the lens of, uh, you know, Buddhist practices and insight traditions and kind of really looking at it from an alternative, if you will. Um, so it's nice to, to hear that storyline of the kind of the wide open framework that there was for you to really find what worked for you. Um, and then to later, as you were more developed, really say, this is something I, I really want to get serious with and to find yourself in a position to be able to be now where there was a center available with teachers. Um, yeah, it's, it's nice to kind of hear that. So rather than um, trying to fit Buddhism into your recovery, <laughs> you know, it's really kind of having this this recovery and this foundation um, and this clear, clear heart and clear mind um, and really then diving deeper into it. Yeah, thank you for reflecting that back. And yeah, yeah. and then at home in Santa Cruz is when there's there ha there was like this little buzz of more Buddhist recovery mm -hmm. 
No, you have uh, the Malasara and Kevin Griffin. Then you had uh, Nola Vine, and you had all, all these different ways where it's just uh, people could have choice of how 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 to investigate Buddhism recovery. Right? Yeah, yeah. Can I talk about that for a second? Yeah, uh, one of the things I one of the questions I had here was just. Uh, along those lines of these different channels and these different, you know, peer-led programs and these different op- options and opportunities that have arisen, you've actually been able to take a leadership position in a few of them. And I'm curious, just, you know, a- as a, someone who's taken a leadership position and kind of seen that um, the in the inner workings of a Buddhist peer-led program, you know, what have you learned from those opportunities and maybe even what would you like to see those programs develop further so that they can be of more service? What have I learned? <laughs> and maybe just, a, you know, kind of the top tier things that really stick out, because I'm sure the nuances of everything that you've absorbed is still going to be unpacked for you for a long time. But, you know, I I would love to also maybe um, that might get tied into a little bit of another question I have, which is as a woman in recovery, um, you know, the specific challenges that you may have faced in Buddhist recovery programs. Mm -hmm. Maybe those are tied together for you. Very much so. Thank you for both of these questions. Um, so it's interesting in being a leader. I still have a shyness with that word, but it's true. I mean, I'm a community Dharma teacher at Insight Santa Cruz. I lead, I teach, I do all kinds of things in, in both the Buddhist world and just the Buddhist world, the Buddhist recovery world and, and in the Buddhist communities, which to me, maybe it's because of the lens I look at through, I, I see them as very similar, like they're the same, like we're, we all work with craving, right? Um, and clinging and identifications. Uh, However, as you're saying, um, just in particular with the Buddhist recovery world, um, and it being this peer-led and also being a leader, I think it's definitely important that we have the community aspect, the Sangha aspect of coming together, normalizing our experiences, being there for each other, and empowering each other, you know, that we each have the potential and and to witness each other as, as we're awakening to, you know, how does my habits of the mind show up and how am I relating it to it and how can I be free and how we support each other in that way. And at the same time, I think it does a disservice if it's all just what we call peer led, where we're all just together in Sangha, I think it's really important that we do have leaders, teachers, mentors, whatever you want to call, you know, there's all various nuances of those titles, you want to call it. But uh, what I mean is, is in being a leader, it's really important for me to constantly reflect on what part of this am I, you know, Am I looking through this through my own stuff or am I purely able to be open with this person that I'm guiding or supporting or whatever it is without framing it through what Kara wants to see? But what is it the needs of this person? And then how do I um, how do I uh, share my experience with something that might be similar to what they're going through? 
and, and, and to realize that I don't have the answers as a leader, the best thing I can do is to know what questions to ask to help the person find those answers within themselves. And uh, so that's why I feel that leaders are important and teachers are important because we ask those questions. Yeah. And as a, as a woman, what I have found, that's such a, an interesting and just such a rich topic as a woman in the teacher or leadership role in this society, there often comes, um, you know, almost mirroring how the rest of society is. I have, I have been the woman who is too loud. I've been the woman who, who makes up, you know, asks too many questions. Um, there's been, you know, by teachers and other leaders who are men who have said things such as, um, you know, maybe you need to sit more and not ask so many questions, you know, and I can use the words such as, oh, there's been gas- gaslighting, there's been sexism. And of course there has, right? There, and what that will activate for me will be this, um, the mind state of doubt. Well, is this a good fit? Should I be doing this? Right. And, and it's easy to blame, but what happened for me is it was really rich to, to just reflect on these questions. Yes, I do belong here. Yes, I do have a voice. Yes, it isn't really actually about me. Can I see the men who are asking these questions? Can I meet that with compassion and see that maybe they feel insecure or threatened? Maybe I'm making them uncomfortable. So can I lean towards that? What is that about and have dialogue? But that took a few years to practice with that, you know, because what automatically will happen is I feel vulnerable. I feel attacked. It will activate some early like trauma in my teenage and young adult life of, you know, how I've been treated by men in the past. And so um, how can I integrate and have healthy relationships you know, and teach them how to be around a strong woman. Yeah, who's in this practice? Yeah, you know, one of the ways that I I like to kind of distinguish this and and look at it through different lenses. But you know, there's a there's kind of the the peer led recovery movement, whether that's a twelve step or Buddhist recovery um, or anything in between that I might not be mentioning. And then there's the, the kind of traditional Buddhist practice, if you will. And um, in the you know more peer led atmosphere, there's often an emphasis on mentorship. And I have always felt like because of my experience, uh, I've I've felt um, encouraged to take on the role of a mentor and to have a men uh, to have mentees and or to have my own mentor, typically, uh, traditionally, you know, suggested with other women, which has been great and and very uh, fruitful for me. You even touched about it when you were first getting clean and sober. Um, However, in the Buddhist arena, even though I've done all of these trainings, as I know you have, and many other things, exactly what you're saying, there seems to be kind of a double standard of that all of my everything that I am, and all of my practice and all of my gained experience of recovery is very worthwhile in one arena. But not sure it translates over into the other. And so it's an interesting place to find myself, um, you know, like you said, you know, fighting with that doubt, um, you know, also just even the kind of, do I even want to go through this? Um, 
And noticing, um, you know, like you said, well, uh, can I, and this is a question maybe for you of like, um, as you balance both of these roles, because I see you having a seat in the peer led movement, and I see you having a seat uh, in the instructor role as well, um, in the traditional forums of um, Dharma teachings. Uh, you know, do you feel that it's necessary to um, have a seat at both tables, if you will, or do you feel like you could be fulfilled combining? Yeah, I definitely can be fulfilled combining them. Yeah, uh, that is something that um, it's it's integrated, right? The mind wants to compartmentalize, <laughs> but it's it's definitely an integration and. Um, and, and I have a seat at the table already, right? And so what now, um, you know, I, t- I keep showing up. There's, there, there continues to be opportunity to uh, bring more understanding to where my role is and, and how to support other people because that's like, that's the biggest motivation. Yeah. And do do you feel like what you bring into the recovery world is different than what you would bring into, you know, kind of just a drop in class, if you will? Um, Do you see addicts as as having, um, you know, or people who identify as addicts having a different need or a way to, you know, um, integrate their Buddhist practice towards their recovery? A great question again. And um, my first like um, reaction, like answer I wanted to give you right now is like, no, I mean, we're all craving from something addicts and, and just people who don't have that relationship to whatever it is, be it substances, people, shopping, sex, whatever. Um, however, the difference would be because I feel that Kara shows up and I'll lead something or mentor or give support in just the way I do, because I integrate all these, you know, the Buddhist and recovery world, it's just so much part of it. it's in my bone marrow. And um, however, I can change the language, right, I can change the language so that, you know, using the speech that, uh, so that I can have connection and there can be understanding with someone who's like, new to just un, to just realizing, oh, wow, I have this relationship with the substance that's creating so much pain in my life. Instead of, you know, start talking about suttas or <laughs> start talking about, you know, something that might be like dependent origination, which just not there yet, right? Let's just talk about we can see the suffering. Like, let's try and understand it. Um, and, uh, and sometimes with, um, not sometimes, but oftentimes, I, I just don't see a clear... I don't think we have to put the people who are in recovery and are practicing Buddhism in one camp and the people who are practicing Buddhism in the other path. One and the same to me. Um, they just, there's just a very, there's just, you know, a focus is a little bit like oh, we're looking at suffering. And I, to tell you the truth, I love those who are like, let's make the suffering. And as I know you do too, it's like these, the heartbroken, so to speak, the, the people who have been through the many hells, like I trust, those are my people. 
right? Yeah, I like yeah. what you're saying about, you know, part of the diff- uh, part of the, the way to distinguish is some of the languaging that you're using, um, as well as just some of the kind of common suffering. And I think you touched upon it early on, and that is also the community, that there is something around the shared suffering uh, with these common themes where, you know, really kind of su- it's a supportive atmosphere uh, when you're in a room or, or in a gathering or on a Zoom <laughs> nowadays with people who are having similar suffering, suffer- causes of suffering. There is something bonded about it, you know, where you can kind of really see each other in one another and say, OK, this is working for you. This is helpful for you. Um, this makes sense to me. This is, you know, directly addressing the way that I'm feeling, um, you know, in private uh, behind. Uh, kind of closed doors uh, internally. This is some of the experience that I'm having and this resonates. And I think that is an important piece specifically for addicts. I think, um, you know, kind of in a regular drop-in Dharma class, I think a lot of people find that as well when they start to unpack the relationship to mind and thoughts. And But um, something more, uh, you know, my experience and the question I always ask myself is why differentiate Buddhism and Buddhism for recovery? Um, But it keeps coming back to me is that there is a sort of urgent urgency to that, you know, that the, the urgency of these, of needing to break these habits um, is, is pretty um, sincere, you know, especially when we're talking about drugs or alcohol or severe eating issues um, or self-harm, you know, these things can be quite difficult um, and, and need uh, so, some immediate uh, addressing, you know. Yeah, the urgency, I, I like to use that word. And there is, uh, appreciate with your saying there is now it's both and right. right. So you want to compartmentalize Buddhism recovery and right. then Buddhism, they're all integrated. And that being said, you know, when I've both led the Buddhist recovery and then just the Buddhist groups, the core underneath of what people are sharing is like unworthiness or fear of abandonment or these type of things. However, there's also a safety element and there's this like sense of, like I said, like, these are my people. When we're in Buddhist recovery, we can begin to talk about, you know, heroin or food or these type of relationships that may create such a separation with people who don't have those, those experiences. We go into Buddhist communities and people are like, oh, wow, you've done crack. Like, I don't even, I don't even know what to do with that. I don't know what that is. Like you're one of those people. And, and which is again, weird because in Buddhism, <laughs> right. This is not to like us and them, but we do that. Right? right, right. Yeah, you have to have a starting point somewhere, you know, in order to kind of get into the mainstream, if you will. That's right. And so that container is created in these Buddhist recovery uh, communities. You know, if, if, if early in early recovery, when I was told, well, it wasn't probably skillful in the way it was told. However, I was told there's no self. I was like, what the fuck, right? Like, <laughs> Self, like because my relationship with myself was so violent and unhealthy and and dissociative, I needed to create the a really like grounded self. I needed to understand who I was first before I could even understand to not attach to that. So it's like that that is all interwoven with the craving cycle and what I was you know I clinging to and. And to have those conversations, that's where that community of uh, people with similar experiences is really beneficial. Yeah. Now, you've been in both 12-step and, you know, in, in Buddhist practice for a long time. So one of the questions I have is, do you think there's anything that the 12-step community 
um, offers that Buddhism doesn't? Uh, maybe just easily more accessible. <laughs> God, I mean, absolutely, right? You can get on a Zoom meeting and be, you can go to 50 meetings today if you, if you had that time, you know. <laughs> um, Buddhism's been around longer. Uh, right. Just their, their format and, you know, because we have a map as well. You know, we have various teachings, as you know, that um, it's just, I think, accessibility um, because there isn't anything. I mean, they have an element of, yeah, there isn't anything that I can think of. And and, and to flip that question on its head, what would, you know, if you were to say, what would Buddhism have that maybe the 12-step world doesn't? I can speak with my own um, experience of what I have seen in 12-step that is that works for many. So it's not like it's a bad thing. Oh, yeah. Um, but what happens, yeah, what, I, what I've noticed um, more so in 12-steps than I do, well, it does happen in the Buddhist <laughs> world, but I, I really see it's really apparent to me in the 12 step world is the attachment to view and, and just like, well, this is the steps, this is what it is, and this is what we have to do. And if we do it any other way, then it's not going to work. Um, so that arises. However, that can happen in the Buddhist world too. If we don't, you know, if we don't sit 45 minutes every day, you know, <laughs> we're not going to, you know, be free. Um, so there's that aspect of it, um, the rigidity or the attachment to view. There's also, um, which my understanding of being around 12 steps for a while is it wasn't originally developed in this way, but it has such a uh, uh, focus on this, this higher power that sometimes can be translated as something outside of ourself or something that's... Um, and, and this is, again, just my experience, but oftentimes what I hear, even with my friends that, you know, I have 25 years in recovery and I'll hear them like, well, you know, God willing, I didn't pick up today. I'm like, you have 25 years in this and you were <laughs> worried that like, 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 it's almost like if lightning hit you, you know? So it's, it's, that's that type of aspect of, I appreciate it in, in the Buddhist, if we're going to compare of fully taking the accountability, knowing my actions, knowing the intentions, knowing that, you know, my potentiality, knowing like really there is this being awake to every effort or to as, as much as you can, right? Being mindful to every effort of how I am participating in this rather than oftentimes what is vocalized in the 12-step world is, is that um, this is happening to me rather than me showing up and creating what is happening. Um, maybe that's shifted, right? Uh, but that's been what I have, uh, what's been reflected back at me. So I would like to see in the 12-step world, and I, I was really, when I was going to more 12-step meetings, I was going to a lot of those 11-step meetings, which is a lot of the, you know, meditation and uh, meetings as well. I would like to see some more of, uh, bringing that into the discussions, um, bringing the reflective practice into discussions and bringing the ethical practice. Without that, um, the moral high ground that can happen, right? Um, and, and that happens here in Buddhism too, right? Sure. 
responsibility. So um, they both have really beneficial practices um, and both of them can be uh, both the Buddhist practices and the 12 step practices can be um, taken in a way that we get so attached to the way things need to be that it becomes harmful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that black and white, uh, you know, thinking this is the way things need to be. This is, you know, and it's sometimes, as we know, kind of from a place of uh, the needing to know or needing a pathway that we can count on. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that as you know, we get longer into our recovery and into our Buddhist practice, even if it's not continuous time, but the longer we sit, the more we do this reflective practice, um, we start to really kind of have a, a lot more grayscale, uh, you know, and that is part of the the benefit of, you know, having instructors and having done retreats and, you know, having a long-term abstinence practice is that it starts to settle in a little bit more, um, one of the conversations I've had with many people is that, you know, uh, entering through the 12-step world that there was, you know, a lot of appreciation that there was so much rigidity because there was so much room for my mind to figure out how I wanted things to look and work out. And if I would have gotten everything that I wanted it to work out the way that it was, you know, God, we could go down a whole different pathway on that. But um, so that that is one of the things that's been reflected back to me many times um, as people work in uh, more peer-led Buddhist recovery programs is the kind of, you know, the fact that there's um, not always a, a starting and end point you know, and, and where do you start and where do you end? And, and it's like, actually, well, you know, spin the wheel. <laughs> What's up for you today? Where's your mind? What's your heart doing? What's, you know, what are the different challenges that you're set with today? Where is the craving? What's the craving on? So it's a, a lot more of a, um, um, uh, an open source, if you will, rather than, you know, kind of a fixed, um, a fixed view, I think, in, in uh, the Buddhist re- recovery platforms. Um, and I think that it's something that is, um, I think, getting more addressed. And I think as people stay in those programs longer, um, there's a little bit more understanding that, oh, there isn't a destination I'm running to. Um, yeah. You, though, are bringing voice to a very important element, at least for what I'm hearing you say was very beneficial for you and also for my temperament is such a wild child. I needed almost like, just, just tell me when to wash my hands. Tell me exactly when I need to do a certain thing. And so that's what the 12 steps and my Buddhist practice, it really helped. I mean, I needed my 12 steps, there's that sponsor, right? And she told me specifically like certain things that were important. I had to have assignments done. I had a right. I couldn't be in a relationship for a year because that was one of my drugs of choice, right? was people. And that doesn't, that doesn't work for everybody, but I needed that. And I needed to have this kind of linear, uh, at least the first year to disestablish some foundation. And that's one of the things that I did appreciate with, and I know you know, like Kevin Griffin with the 12 steps, there is that sense of like, you're, you're moving into this, you know, thing, even with the refuge recovery, there was this, uh, you know, although it's always suggested, of course, no one's forcing you to do anything, but it's like, Hey, you know, 
breath practice and then forgiveness practice, do those every day. And then at 30 days, you do this. And then at 60 days, you do this. Like it has a map, which that's what I needed in 12 steps. That's what I needed when I came into um, to a degree of mentoring with people in Buddhist recovery. It's like, okay, look, we could do this for noble truths and we can look at this and we can establish sit every day for 30 days and text me that you sat, you know, just to establish a practice. Um, Some may say that uh, that isn't beneficial for them, but there's plenty of people where that is beneficial, especially coming in uh, the throes of active um, addictive cycles. We have to just cut that, you know, habit and create new habits. And are we going to push against those? We certainly are. Right. But sometimes we assess the suffering and the hell that we've been in is way worse than, okay, I'm going to sit every day for, you know, in the beginning, maybe it's only five minutes because the mind is just. Yeah. I mean, I, I think the being at home so much right now with COVID and kind of, we, we jokingly call it our, our year long home retreat. Um, and, you know, there is something about that. Like uh, if you go on retreat, there is a designated schedule. You're going to sit, you're going to walk, you're going to have breakfast at a certain time. There's, you know, work periods, there's rest periods, um, there's time to come in and have formal teachings. And so there is something I think that we are um, uh, learning to appreciate when there is kind of a rhythm in which we're working in. Yeah. Yeah, you touched you touched on it a little bit um, as you were kind of listing out some of the things that you do with some of the new mentees or as different programs might suggest. But in your opinion um, and in your practice, what Buddhist teachings do you find to be the most supportive of recovery? Well, of course, there's the <laughs> all of them. <laughs> Besides all of them. <laughs> I mean, I really, um, I'm such a body practice. I mean, I, I do the 32 parts of the body. I, the Satipatthana Sutta is just, um, you know, look, you know, mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of the feeling tone is huge. I mean, that's one of my favorites, just noticing. I mean, that's a little more advanced in the very beginning of recovery. It's like feeling tone. What the hell is that? Right. Is that anger? But we could start touching in it. Like, what, what is that? Is that pleasant? Is it unpleasant? You know, what does unpleasant even feel like? What is the, maybe pain isn't so much that quick aversive reaction, but maybe it's just tingly or numb or warm. Like, let's investigate what is this thing we call pain and change our relationship with it. So I, I appreciate that, you know, these uh, mindfulness of the body practice, mindfulness of what's the state of our mind. Of course, the Four Noble Truths, right? The <laughs> looking at suffering. I always, in the beginning, thought that, oh, I know I'm suffering. And when suffering's present, I'm to like, um, you know, get rid of it. I'm supposed to like somehow stop the suffering. But actually, the Buddha teaches where to understand the suffering before we, you know, change anything, to really deeply understand the causes and what it is about the suffering. And so that takes us 
building our tolerance. And that takes time. That doesn't just happen. And okay, you got 30 days, you know, suffering, you know, you understand. <laughs> Revisited again and again in different levels. And, and this Buddhist practice is so about subtleties, right? This, our practice. And so how does suffering arise? And then when we think we got it, it's like, oh, it's just even deeper than that. It's more richer. And the insights that come from that. So definitely the Four Noble Truths yeah, I found I found the feeling tone actually. I'm 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 not surprised that you find that uh, as a helpful practice because I think we have so much in common. But I found that to be a very rich practice to start to label and understand kind of when I wanted to, you know, the the old adage of I wanted to move my leg because my leg was falling asleep or it hurt or I thought it was going to fall off or my, you know, I was going to be paralyzed for the rest of my life if I sat here any longer. And to learn to make the relationship to tolerating, you know, uncomfortability. Um, and that that was so much of the, you know, the crux of my problem was I didn't want any uncomfortability for any period of time. Um, and I cling to pleasure. Oh, this feels good. I'm going to continue ruminating in this thought and having this fantasy as I'm sitting here, um, rather than cutting it off and coming back. Um, and so, you know, watching the connection between my relationship to pleasure, to pain, um, to, you know, neutral was like, if I'm in neutral, I better shift you know, out of it quickly. <laughs> uh, you know, neutral. I don't think I got neutral for many, many years. Uh, so yeah, I really appreciated that practice as a as a tool to begin to understand the workings of my response. Yeah, mechanism. And yeah. in, in it's where I yeah, I totally relate to what you're saying where it's coming up like Currently, uh, this is interesting because it's what I'm working with right now, the feeling tone of when um, neutral arises, there is a, a habit that I do. I'll start fidgeting and I'll fidget by like um, rubbing my thumb over my cuticle. And it's very subtle. There's nothing wrong with that. But what it does, there's a distraction that's happening. And so this is what the practice brings to just my understanding. So what is this slightly neutral, which has now shifted to unpleasant? Why? And when I look into what it is that internally the voice, it's like, I don't want to be here. I don't want to be in neutral. Am I finding it bored? What, what's happening? Is it because it's not entertaining? Is it, it's not, does I have my attention? But it started with, my what got my attention was noticing the fidgeting of the fingers and then noticing oh, neutrals and then neutral switch to unpleasant. And so it's so rich mm-hmm. in what we can just understand about ourselves and and then noticing that the judgments that might arise, right? The criticisms. Well, why do I do that? Maybe I do that because my mom, you know, whatever the story. And it's actually unhooking from those stories, just allowing it to be here. Um I think that's that's a lot where that kind of empowerment, if you will, arises, right? You know, when we talk often about uh, Buddhist practice really gives us the opportunity to rise um, into our own power, if you will, um, and that we have the ability to meet things as they are. And for me, that was one of the secret keys, if you will, into that empowerment of, oh, I can tolerate this for five seconds, five minutes, five hours, five days, whatever it is. Um, it was a, a great tool of and unlocking kind of a, a whole new world for me. Exactly. And the confidence grows, right? And the faith in ourself. And then 
what starts to slowly dissolve is that core belief of unworthiness because of the confidence, because of the empowerment, right? Or whatever it is, whatever that core wounding is for people, often it's unworthiness, but yeah. Yeah, beautiful. I mean, I feel like we could go on and on. And I know that there's probably um, another time for us to sit down and have the conversation again, um, maybe in more detail about some of the, the other aspects of Buddhist practice. But um, just being sensitive of our time, I, I wanted to just uh, before we close, see if there was anything from your perspective that um, as far as a topic or a question that maybe you thought we were going to be able to address, but didn't get uh, didn't didn't get asked. Now, see, now I'm like <laughs> looking for a topic. I'm, yeah. I, I, really, I don't, I don't have a, a question, but I have this, the wonderful topic of just continuing to do what you're doing, Shannon, you know, of, of anybody listening to this, like finding those communities that continue to support us as we turn towards the uncomfortable and getting comfortable and to be curious, to, to learn what being kind to ourselves is, uh, to, to empower ourselves and each other. Like those are the topics, those are the people to continue to surround ourselves with, the Sangha, the community, um, and the work that we do and the work that you do. So I really, uh, yeah, that we, this was a nice snapshot and, and we can, anytime talk again. <laughs> yeah, I would love that. I'd love to sit down and get some tea and, and continue this conversation because I have um, a lot of other areas that I'd love to explore with you, um, you know, more specifically around women in recovery. Um, I think that's something that we could unpack a little bit further in the future. But you know, today, I just wanted to kind of open the dialogue of just different perspectives of, you know, what is recovery? What is Buddhism? How do they match one another? Um, you know, how do we put them at the centerpiece of our life? And, and what what does that look like when we do that? Um, so, you know, you've been a, a great um, beacon, if you will, of, you know, what it looks like to hold uh, recovery and Buddhist practice at, at the at the heart of, of your day in, day out life. So I really um, just want to let you know, I'm a, um, I think that you're a dear one, and I cherish you greatly. So Addiction is not a choice that anybody makes, it's not a moral failure, it's not an ethical lapse, it's not a weakness of character, it's not a failure of will, it's just how our society depicts addiction, nor is it an inherited brain disease, which is how the medical tendency is to see it. What it actually is, it's a response to human suffering.